welcome to Pete's Percussion Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Zambito, and we're here for episode 253 and part one of my conversation with percussionist, composer, performer, lyricist, writer, improviser, visual artist, and a person of even more skills than that, Julie Spencer. Let's get right to it. I've been aware of Julie Spencer's work for a fairly long time, mainly as a performer and composer predominantly on marimba. I had heard her years ago on the At Percussion podcast and thought that at some point I should have her on. And we finally got connected, so here we go. Julie's had an incredibly varied and safe to say unusual career as one moves along in the percussion world. She's lived in many cities and countries. She's taught seemingly every imaginable topic in music, and while being an autodidact, which is her term, as is mentioned in the podcast interview, has gotten lessons here and there from a wide variety of performers and teachers in many disciplines. Currently, she lives in Germany with her husband, who's also a composer and teacher, and her children, who also may have artistic careers ahead of them as well. She works primarily as a freelance performer and composer, while also doing some teaching at a local German gymnasium, which I gather is similar to a middle school and high school in the United States. She is also, as she'll discuss, very motivated and inspired by social justice issues that take a prominent role in her artistic output. As I thought might be the case, we went pretty long with this interview because, as I mentioned, her career is so enormously varied. I was glad Julie was up for talking as long as she was because we got started with the interview at 9 p.m. local time for her in Germany and finished up after midnight again in Germany. So today on part one, you'll get to hear about her artistic activities right now, her personal motivations for her work, the ways and reasons that her career has both opened and closed in various spots, her reasons for staying in Germany, and the wild ups and downs of her college teaching career in the United States. In part two, coming next week, you'll get the rest of the story. So here we go. We recorded this interview over Zoom on July 25th, 2021, and it begins right now. I'm going to reframe how I typically open this, which is I, I want to, I just kind of want to know what your, I would frequently, I focus this on your percussion, but because you cover so many different aspects of the arts and what you do, just kind of give me a summation of what your arts life is like right now. Cool. Um, first of all, Pete, call me Jules. Jules. Okay. It's a nickname I had um, a long time ago and I really, I enjoy it. And okay. I think if we're going to be talking about my life, it's fun if uh, if we just start out as though we've known each other for years. Okay. Even though we met maybe 10 minutes ago. <laughs> <laughs> Man, in, in, the, uh, in the art world, people are brothers and sisters in, in less than five minutes if the connection is right because of what we all love to do. All right. So when you say the art world, what would you like me to talk about? What... Okay. Uh, I mean, you have things in performance, composition, I believe visual art, you uh, 
So just kind of things that are going on for you at this point. Things that are going on for me. <laughs> That's a funny question. Uh, because when uh, when Pei Ching interviewed me a couple of years ago when I was in Taipei, um, I started, she gave me a general question like that to open up. And so I talked about all the commissions and people that were playing commissions because I was in Taiwan to hear the premiere of an orchestra piece uh, that this great soloist Wei Chenlin had commissioned that was being, uh, being premiered in Taipei. And so I talked about all these commissions and all these fabulous young players who were playing stuff. And then at the end of the interview, Pei Ching said, Julie, don't you play concerts anymore? All you wanted to talk about you know, was all these other people playing your pieces. And I was like, duh, I should have talked about, you know, more variety of things. So I love the way that you asked the question, Pete. I appreciate that. But I guess um, I'm really into, um, you know, I love shining the spotlight on as many people as I can, because I feel like all of us just need support and love. And so it makes me happy to talk about commission pieces, because I get to talk about all these, all these amazing players who inspire me and who I'm you know, amazed that I get to write music for. So I'll start with that. Nino Masayuki is a, a Japanese virtuoso on the marimba, but he's also um, he's also an LGBTQ rights activist in Japan. And so he commissioned me to write a piece, another rap uh, piece for marimba. Um, and so uh, I used text from, uh, from the UN uh, Human Rights Commission, uh, an, an event that they had, I used text from um, um, Harvey Milk, one of the first elected officials in the United States uh, who was openly gay, and uh, Barack Obama. And then I wrote text, and then Nino also wrote some text with me, and he made it just a killer video, just way out there awesome video. And he works with a lot of uh, LGBTQ um, activists in Japan who are also politicians. And so his hope and my hope um, was, well, I mean, my hope was to support the LGBTQ community and to write a really cool piece. And this piece um, really is cool. It's called um, Groove for Hope. And so that's something, he just premiered this video online, of course, because hardly anybody has any live gigs yet. Um, and I was really, really proud of that piece. Usually when you talk to composers, what's your favorite piece? It's usually going to be the thing they said they just wrote. So I have to say, I don't know how objective I am about it, but I'm pretty excited about this piece. Um, the other, uh, the first uh, rap song from Marimba, I believe I'm the one that composed it, and that was commissioned by Beverly Johnson in Toronto. And that was also about uh, peace and democracy and freedom and uh, freedom of speech. And I really love that piece. And a lot of people who are familiar with more of my pieces, they say it's one of their favorite things. Um, but this piece, I think this piece, um, Proof for Hope, I, I don't know how this can't really move people's hearts because uh, it's, it's me unleashed at the marimba with uh, just everything that I love to play. So I figured Nino would love it too because he was one of the people who had also championed the rap piece uh, in Japan besides um, uh, besides uh, Shiori Tanaka, who had also been doing it, and besides other people like um, Leo Li Yu uh, in Manchester, who's a, a musical ambassador for China, and he does tons of international touring. Hopefully, he'll be able to start up again soon. Um, and so, when Nino asked me to write this piece, it's because he had been playing that original rap song uh, that Beverly commissioned, 
and uh, and I really appreciated him trusting me, uh, not being in the LGBTQ community, but trusting that I would be able to uh, to feel the love of the purpose and to be able to put something in the grooves that would really uh, open people up. You know, they say in, in churches, the best sermons are when the when the minister starts out with a couple of jokes to get people relaxed, and that's how I think of um, that's how I think of grooves from marimba. I think grooves just uh, really help people be able to put their heart and soul on the instrument. And I mean, I've written all kinds of music from, um, you know, from contemporary classical multimedia stuff played in festivals, orchestra music, neoclassical stuff, jazz, uh, rock, you name it. Um, but at this time in my life, what I am most excited about is writing music for a purpose that's more than just um, the value of the music itself, which is very important. But I'm really into being able to put the music, to marry the music to a cause that I think um, people need to talk about. And I think the best way to do that is to write a groovy piece that, um, that puts audiences at ease. And what I hear from, um, from people who play Everybody Talk About Freedom is that that's what that piece does. It, it just gets audiences up on their feet. In fact, um, <laughs> Neola Yu had just uh, performed that in a concert in, um, in China, in one of the tallest buildings in China. And he posted a video of it uh, last month. And people just started rapping with him at the end of the song. And it was so amazing because he hadn't invited them to rap, but there's a certain amount of repetition, you know, like in the best pop songs with a good hook. And people just started rapping with him. And it was, uh, he posted that and said, he's played this all over the world and that had never happened before. So I feel like um, if if I can write music that makes people wanna want to be involved in the music, then uh, then I'm doing something right. So yeah. anyway, that's that's the most recent piece that was that was premiered. Um, the next thing that's coming up that I'm really excited about is that Gordon asked me to write a piece um, for the International Marimba Orchestra, and that's going to be premiered at PASIC in November. And that's kind of funny. It's I mean when you're writing music. Things come from all different directions, but um, because of COVID, I was eligible, even though I'm not a German national, I was eligible to apply for more different kinds of grants and stuff as, um, as a freelance musician and composer here. So I got this grant, which was really cool last year. And then um, I called Kashka Paderzini and I said, you know, I know you've got your, your um, big 10 year reunion festival coming up. Is there something that you would like? And she said, yeah, I would love for you to write a piece uh, for that, you know, for the, uh, to celebrate that. And it's actually being published. It's called uh, Stronger Every Day. It's being published by Norse Music with a little sticker on it that it's, you know, for Kashka's thing, uh, for her um, festival, for her uh, ITMA. And then because of COVID, she had to um, cancel that and move it forward. And so when I talked to Gordon, I said, you know, um, I've got this piece that I didn't think he was going to be able to premiere, but it turns out he is going to be giving the world premiere, not just the U.S. premiere. And that's also a really groovy piece that um, uh, is all about being together, stronger every day, because, cool, Kashka wanted to write, wanted me to write a piece for um, a quartet on one instrument. And that's what it is which is kind of cool that it's being done by the orchestra now because um, you have more than one people on an instrument for most of the most of the stuff. So those are the two pieces um, that I'm really excited about right now. I've got some other stuff in the pipeline, um, Leo Liu, 
uh, has a commission that he wants me to write. And um, I just had a commission that was really fun from the Reno, um, Nevada Orchestra uh, that was premiered uh, in February, and I was really excited about that to get to write for string orchestra. Then. And there's another thing in the works um, to do another orchestra commission. I'm waiting to get the final word from the commission on that. So those are some of the commissions that are going on right now that, that I'm excited about. There's a, a band that I play with here in Germany. It's a really cool project. My husband and I and the saxophonists wrote all the music for it. And it's a quintet, and we got a state grant a couple of years ago to be doing things. So we did some live radio concerts. We did some touring in northern Germany. And um, the music is with an actor from Potsdam, which is near Berlin. And he recites in a rhythmic kind of way. So it's kind of like rap, but not exactly like rap. But it's, um, it's a, a literary project with jazz, uh, with German, um, famous German poets. <clears throat> And so we're doing, um, um, uh, we were scheduled to do actually a jazz concert <laughs> this month. And um, that fell through because of COVID. And now we're doing a, um, a theater festival in Potsdam, just outside Berlin uh, next month in a few weeks. And we're really excited about that. Uh, so I'll get a chance to be doing percussion and the mallet cat stuff and a lot of improvising and keyboard. And uh, I'm excited about gigs where I get to do, you know, more than one thing. Um, we just had the first concert in a year and a half with a trio that I'm in with an Ethiopian German singer um, where I play uh, djembe in a small set um, and, uh, and Malik Cat. That was so awesome. That was just three days ago and it was four days ago. And, and uh, man, I just love being in front of an audience and audiences are so appreciative. I mean, to get standing ovations, you know, in a, a relatively small concert, there were only about a hundred people but it was, um, it's such a great feeling, you know, to be able to have that give and take with the audiences again. And, and uh, like I said, I love, love doing concerts where I could be doing djembe and, and, uh, and the mallet cat and the percussion and stuff. Just, uh, it's such a thrill. Then um, we have this other project. Um, my husband got a bunch of uh, grant money to finally finish the CD that we had recorded um, with um, Rainer Maria Rilke poems. Uh, my husband is a Liedermacher. In German, that means uh, a songwriter, but a particular kind of songwriter. And he, he has set over 400 um, classic German poems by men and women for the last 300 years in Germany. He has uh, written songs to these, and he's got an edition of, of, of songs that have also been published. And so the, uh, we got a grant to finally finish that and produce that. And uh, I, I play tabla on that recording. My husband plays sitar. I'm doing singing. Um, I'm doing uh, scatting. I'm doing uh, a lot of improvisation on the mallet cat. And, uh, and my husband is singing and that's so much fun. And the city uh, where we live, they started doing video concerts, um, you know, streaming stuff uh, because we still don't have any, uh, hardly any live concerts at all. And so we get to do a concert of that and they're filming it with drones on top of the tower, it's like a, a medieval, originally a Roman tower from like 1100s. And so they're filming the whole thing with us sitting on top uh, with the mallet cat and the, and, the, and the keyboard next month. And I'm really excited about that. Um, I won't be able to do the tabla and the sitar and all that stuff with my husband, but it'll be a great chance to, um, 
yeah, to just get to do that program again. It's been a year and a half since we did that. And um, a really exciting thing that I got to do um, a couple of months ago was a, a new trio that we have. Well, it's basically dance music that our son writes, uh, all digital music. And then I improvise with, um, with all kinds of instruments. I play tabla in that band, and I soon plays uh, a lot of sitar and, uh, and malakat. And we did a live stream concert a couple of months ago. That was the first concert that we've done. And um, we've been doing more and more commission work. We've got another commission coming up uh, with our son, the three of us composing music for a private company, um, a meditation company that, uh, that it's just really radically cool to get to do stuff, uh, improvised music and composing in that context, practically all digital. And the other cool thing that happened recently was uh, putting together our first music video. Um, my son and I wrote a piece that was accepted for um, an international music festival in San Diego called Muyamo. And, uh, and so we shot the, the video, uh, we did the music, and it was just really fun to get to, um, yeah, just stretching out in all directions. As far as the, the, the visual art is going, um, I got a sponsor about a half a year ago to put together a new show. Um, and I've been getting some um, commissions from that. And I just uh, had a commission and a sale for the University of Mainz. It's one of uh, Germany's major universities. And it's known for its um, theoretical physics department because the guy who heads the program is one of the world's leading world experts on um, dark matter. And so he has this, this center at the university where they invite experts on theoretical physics from all over the world. And they come and stay for a few months and they do these projects. And they've got a new lecture room. And um, we happen to be, be friends uh, with the director. And so he knew that I was doing this show and he, um, he actually saw a private, um, um, they call it vernissage in German. I don't know what the word is in English because uh, I basically started my visual arts career here in Germany. But it's like the, 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 the show, and I did a video of the show and uh, he saw that and then he came to the gallery for a personal showing. And so now these uh, two artworks that uh, he says look like the origins of the universe with, um, with different kinds of, of waves and stuff that we actually have um, really cool stuff from the Hubble um, telescope while it was still working before it recently gave up the ghost uh, just a couple of weeks ago. And, um, and I'm really excited about having that uh, as, as a permanent exhibition there at the University of Mainz. So it's kind of like, yeah, a bunch of stuff is happening and I'm just trying to, yeah, keep my routine every day and, and be able to, um, you know, practice my Bach on the piano every day, the preludes and fugues and kind of keep my hands busy even when I'm not, um, not practicing and other things because it's really hard to keep everything going at the same time. It's a lot of fun having a lot of different balls in the air. I also teach part-time at a German gymnasium, which is um, school in Germany that goes from fifth to grade 13. And um, I love working with the kids. It always keeps me on my toes and being able to, um, yeah, to show them the world music instruments. I just did a, a workshop with them because we have uh, in Germany, what you guys call all year round school. You know, we just have a few weeks off at different points in the, in the year. And being able to do a workshop with them, um, uh, with the African xylophones, with the tabla, a bunch of different things. 
and seeing kids' faces light up when they're being uh, exposed for the first time to new worlds and new cultures and new languages. And, and uh, so that's another part of my life that, uh, that I really enjoy. And um, yeah, another thing was is judging. I, I was a judge recently for a world music band competition sponsored by um, this region of our state. Uh, my husband was, uh, was asked to do that and then we were on the panel together. And we've got the um, we've got the 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 prize giving ceremony in a couple of weeks. And I'm really excited about that and about seeing what the bands are. World music popping up more in Germany, and um, it was just a fascinating chance to get to see what's going on. You know, with a lot of bands that you don't normally hear or maybe aren't on festivals yet, but seeing what's happening and how how ideas are being generated, and it was very inspiring. And then um, I got to work as a judge in a festival in the UK. Um, Southern Percussion and Percussion Works um, uh, had put this thing on and hearing so many amazing, talented people. I mean, it was like 150 people from all over the world. And it was really hard um, to pick the winners in the different age categories. But man, oh man, was that inspiring. Just to hear the level of players was, uh, man, it's, uh, it, it lit a fire under me to realize, okay, uh, keep reaching for you know what I haven't done yet. Keep reaching for for things in my own playing, and um, and it was just totally fun to get to write positive remarks to everybody. You know the judges' comments um, that I I really push for being able to give judges comments because I feel like there are so many people, and when you come from a small place, a small city, or a small school, and you don't get that much feedback, it's amazing to get to hear people from all over the world respond to what you're doing. So I am. Uh, uh, I am so inspired by how people are playing just in every corner of the world right now. So that was totally cool. And I mean, lots of other stuff. I mean, doing workshops, I did a workshop for um, Boston Conservatory a few months ago with Nancy Zeltzman students. And um, man, oh man, hearing people play is just always the best. Getting to meet new people and, and seeing, seeing what makes people tick and what motivates them and hearing that come out in the music. Um, Man, oh man, it's just, it's a great life. My dad used to say, I'm, I'm really lucky to get to meet so many fascinating people. I feel extremely fortunate that I've been able to have, to be able to keep going because I had the part-time teaching work, which a lot of freelance musicians don't have. Um, and to be able to be getting grants here in Germany because the country really supports the arts in an amazing kind of way. And to um, you know be married to someone in the arts, now to have you know one of you know have a connection also with one of our kids I feel like um, yeah I, I feel incredibly grateful every day for being able to uh, to do what I do and and getting to meet you Pete and getting to be in this opportunity to talk about my life what I also hear a lot from people uh, when I do these workshops and stuff is that people are very moved um, by the fact that I've been able to have a family and that I've been able to, um, you know, have a marriage that keeps going. We're, we're going to be celebrating 30, 30 years this year in just a few months. And for a lot of women around the world, that's still unimaginable because so many women percussionists are in cultures where it's expected that once you get married and have kids, that you don't continue your career. And there are so many women out there uh, who have had to make a choice between career, artistic work, and family marriages or family with kids. And I, I 
like to think that um, that we get to we get to make our own choices. And I would just like to say that if if there are women listening who feel like that's something they would like to do, um, I would just like to say it's possible, but you have to marry the right guy. You have to be with people who really believe in you and who want to see you succeed. And in that category, I've uh, I've just been really blessed and really lucky. So. That's kind of the stuff going on for me, going on for my husband and uh, what's going on here in Germany. And like I said, it's always a little embarrassing when somebody leaves it so open like you just did at the beginning to talk about stuff going on because frankly, I can't do all the stuff that I'm doing and be thinking about it every day. In fact, there are some days where I, I have to remind myself, right, I've got to get on this because um, you know my head was in such a different space you know, for these couple of days or for this week in them. Um, when I hear myself talking about it, um, it just sounds crazy. It sounds crazy what I'm doing, but I, I just try to take one day at a time and I try to, yeah, just uh, take a deep breath and uh, take my walk up on the mountain and play with the cat and, and tell jokes and have fun with the kids and, uh, you know, have a date with my husband every now and then where it's not also a rehearsal. Right. <laughs> or a rehearsal that turns into a date. Which you, which you didn't plan on, but that's just what happened. Because <laughs> that's the only date, you know. Right. Week or something. Yeah. Anyway, I hope I haven't yeah. haven't talked too long, but when you leave it open, man, and it gets going, it I I start to remember right, and I've got that, and right, and I've got that. It, it's when you talk to friends, you of course normally don't do that because you know you don't want to bore people with the stuff that you're doing, but. It's nice actually to have the opportunity for people who might be interested to know what life looks like as a professional freelance musician, because I didn't go the road that a lot of solo marimbas do. Um, I didn't get a full-time teaching gig. I've always taught adjuncts at the University of Michigan, um, at CalArts, um, at Antelope Valley Community College. I mean, adjunct teaching has always been my way to be able to keep being able to do all the different things that I do because it's, uh, it's cool. Yeah. It's cool. So, all right, I'm going to take a, a well, well, I'll cover a few things here um, on this, the, the about kind of with what you said here, because there's a few different avenues that I want to ask you a little bit more about. So first off is, have you been someone who has been motivated by doing a lot of different tasks? Like you're you, you either the one thing you like, you can focus on the one thing, but you're actually happier if you have a lot of different things going on. Um, were you, have you always been like that? Was, was that something you sought out? That's a good question. I really love being alone in nature. A big part of being me is that I need time alone. Okay. So if you call that, you know, focusing on one thing, um, it's definitely, I mean, for me, I mean, it's a, it's a kind of spiritual center, I guess I would say, you know, it's prayerful, it's gratitude, it's thinking about ways to do things, ways of thinking about things that are more open and more, um, yeah, more open and trying to be a light for love. So I guess I would say that the one thing that is consistent, as consistent as anything else, is um, trying to not think of it as doing a lot of things. But thinking of my life as being all of me, which is why it's hard to answer the question, 
because of course that's how you word it because you don't know how my inner narrative sure. plays like a film in my head. Right. But but the way that I experience it is that I'm just being me. And because I am naturally uh, incredibly curious about almost everything, um, I always am reading about lots of different kinds of things. And so when I, you know, when I heard Bob Becker when I was 19 at a PASIC convention and I happened to be sitting in the front row, I thought, okay, I, I'm one day I'm gonna be a tablet player. You know, and that was just it. You know, I hadn't even I hadn't even met Bob yet. And, Bob, and you're not even talking about the the xylo- I was like, it wasn't even you're not even playing rags. That was that was, that was like where my head went first. <laughs> no, it was it was Bob playing tablo with Nexus, yeah. and um, I didn't know at that moment that he was going to be a major influence and you know, a good friend. So I didn't think about oh now I'm going to do this. It was just there was something in me. I fall in love with things. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I when I hear somebody put their soul into the music, and if it's a sound that really um, res- physically resonates in my body, um, I usually have a feeling, okay, this is gonna be something that I do. Unless it's a guitar player or a violinist or something like that where I've already tried it, and I know that I don't have the chops for it or the fingers or whatever. So at one point I did decide, okay, it's gonna be, Percussion, keyboard, and voice. And at one point, I knew, okay, that that's what I'm going to be playing. Um, and in terms of doing one thing or lots of things, um, the only time when I limited myself once was in eighth grade, when my science teacher, my art teacher, and my music teacher, um, because I had won competitions at a state level in all these areas. Um, at the same time when I was 13. And so all these teachers were telling me, this is going to be your field of study. This is what you're going to do, you know, when you go to college. And I was 13, 14 years old. And I was terribly overwhelmed because I couldn't imagine at that age not getting to do everything that I wanted to do always. Because I just thought, okay, this is how it is. I get to do my science project and go to the state competition. I get to do my art project and go to the, you know, it's like, okay, this is how it is. And when they started talking to me that way, I started realizing, wow, I'm going to have to make choices. And I really, really got depressed at the end of eighth grade. Um, I was valedictorian of eighth grade. And then everybody was saying, oh, you're going to be a professor. I mean, it just got more and more. And I was like, these, these voices in my head, like, how can you not do all of the stuff that you love? And so I decided at that moment um, that I didn't know what I wanted and I really had a crisis. And I know it sounds dumb, but at 14, I had, a, I had my first major life crisis. And then um, I slowly had to cut things away and away. And I finally decided, okay, I'm not gonna major in science at university. I'm not gonna be a scientist. Then I had to cut away and I said, okay, I'm not gonna be a visual artist at university because everything was all about, you know, what do you do at university? It wasn't even like, what do you do with your life? It's just, okay, what's the next step? Right. And then I thought, okay, I'm not gonna major in composition at university because I didn't have a composition teacher. That was something I didn't really have that was um, pushing me forward because my main stuff at that point was improvisation. I was just 
doing tons of improvisation in all different kinds of areas. But anyway, that's not the point. But so then I decided, okay, the easiest thing to do, if I have to cut everything back, the one thing that I cannot survive without doing, I mean, physically just in a day, what got me through the crisis was playing piano. So then I thought, okay, I'm gonna study piano. And then even that had to fall away because what gave me the greatest inner peace when I was 15, if you can believe that this is how things are decided in the life of Julie, uh, what gave me the greatest inner peace was playing the marimba. And so I knew at 14 and then 15, that's what I was gonna do in the next step. And so then I was very fortunate enough to get to meet Gordon Stout and to get to meet Lee Stevens and started being a pen pal with Gordon um, because some people who kind of believed that maybe that was something I could do uh, said, you should know him. And so, um, yeah, so that's what happened. So that was when I got pared down. And then when I got to Eastman, um, I was playing piano, you know, five, six hours a day and I was a percussion major. And I thought, something's gotta give. I'm gonna have to, in music, also cut back the piano. And so I decided, the second half of my freshman year, sophomore year, okay, if I'm gonna do this, I better just focus on that. And so for the next um, next three years, I focused on being a, a solo marimbist. And then after that, after Eastman, the world was open again and I just uh, could do whatever I wanted. Yeah. Right, I <laughs> so, then when I went, so then when I went to CalArts, I focused, two years later, I focused on um, jazz composition and that's what I got my master's in at CalArts. So that's when I was able to study African drumming and, um, and gamelan and the tabla, contemporary composition and, you know, yeah. playing in an ensemble with Morton Sabotnik. You know, I mean, it was just like, it was such craziness, all these things coming together. Um, and it felt like that's why, as much as I love Eastman and I love John Beck and I love all the guys that I was in school with, I mean, it's just some of the best people in the world. Uh, when I got to CalArts and I met my husband actually in the first week of school, that's when I felt like I was, as a person, I really came home because um, CalArts, I mean, Walt Disney's idea was all the arts under, under one roof. And mm -hmm. that's where I felt like, hey, that's me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that's, that's, that's awesome. You know, what's, what's interesting about the way you phrase that is there's a couple of thoughts that, that came in my head and I wonder if you've, Thought of, I, I wouldn't be surprised if you've thought about these as well. One is that you noticed you were probably interacting with people who had who had like the hyper focus on the one the one thing, you know, like the one they were the teacher for this and they were like, well, you need to do. This. So so you had to kind of deal with with that part of it. And then if you think now, I, I would like there's so many so many um, you know, young people who are coming up through middle school, high school now are in everything. Like, I, I mean, like their, their schedules are so filled up with not just if they're, it's like they have band in the morning so that they can actually play sports in the afternoon. You know, like it, it's like, they, so it's, you were almost, you were just kind of ahead of your time. It sounds like uh, on the, on the, you were just doing everything in, in ways that other students weren't as focused on. Maybe it sounds like. I don't know. I, I can't comment on that. I can just say that um, that in my experience, a lot of people wanted me to specialize very early. Yeah. So I, I, I interpret that now to mean that people thought that I had had the potential to work as a professional and to excel as a professional in those fields. 
um, and that they were people who noticed that, um, you know, when I was really young. But that it's interesting you mentioned sports because um, I played tennis and I really loved tennis. And it was one of the things actually like marimba that gave me so much solace for playing piano improvisations. And um, and another another activity that is very, that tends to be very soloistic. Yeah, yeah. I, I wasn't really into team sports because I couldn't practice that by myself as much. Right. Yeah, I wanted to go out for the team and uh, the orchestra conductor spoke to the choir director and they spoke to, you know, the tennis coach and everybody decided about me that um, I was I was the best drum set player in the school and everybody needed me. The tennis coach already had amazing athletes because, I mean, we had some amazing women athletes. We had a, I was in school with a- And where is you know, this? That's in Indianapolis, Indiana. Okay. Um, I was in school with uh, people who went on to be in the, you know, the Indiana Hall of Fame for women athletes. I mean, that, that was the caliber of people that I just happened to be in school with at that time at that school. And, um, and so the teachers decided for me that Julie was not going to be on the tennis team. She wasn't even going to get to go out for the tennis team. She was going to be playing drum set for every ensemble in the school, the musicals, um, the choirs, the timpani and the orchestra. I mean, I was doing all the Allstate stuff, the Allstate orchestra, you know, with timpani and percussion, the, the Allstate bands, not to mention marching band and stuff. So it was, um, that was kind of decided for me, which was, I felt really bad about that because my brother was a collegiate tennis player and did very well. And I really wanted to, to continue that. And um, it was taken out of my hands. Yeah. Kind of weird. So. I don't know. I think it was also just that, um, you know, there wasn't somebody else who was a virtuosic drum set player. You know, I was a good drum set player. I wasn't a virtuosic drum set player. It was never something that I thought, okay, this is what I'm going to be the rest of my life. But I love playing. I love playing kid. But it's um, it's just what the school needed, you know. And it's like the kid who ends up with the French horn because you know they need French horn. Right. Yeah. But you get more gigs because the, there's uh, musicals and there's jazz combos and there's, you know, it might be there might be a friends rock band somewhere, you know, you, there are well, outlets in for drum set, you know. <laughs> it's, it's it's funny that you say that because I did get to play drum set in in a rock band. I did get to play keyboards in a rock band that won a state competition for a radio program. I got to play. Um, I got to play in a university in a, in a top tier university, new music festival because they needed somebody who could read charts you know I mean I was a good reader mm -hmm. so I was playing with you know I was playing with adults in all different areas starting from the time I was 15 doing professional gigs and that was just I mean that was crazy so I really had a lot of opportunities that you know a lot of people don't have so maybe maybe it was my good luck that I didn't get to go out for the tennis team <laughs> well this is this is super fascinating because what it sounds like is that and you you've already alluded to this is that when you get done with Eastman um we're jumping around a lot here but I'm enjoying this uh when you get done with Eastman you it sounded like you internally were like okay the paths have been chosen for me for so long like it's now my time <laughs> almost it feels like did it feel like that to you well, there's a there's a funny story of um, 
one of my juries. I, I didn't, I mean, I was just a kid. I didn't know that I was going to be earning serious money, you know, subbing with orchestras in the future. I just thought, okay, I'm a solo marimbist. And I, and I do, you know, I was learning jazz at that time and stuff. But anyway, um, so, you know, I'm doing the juries with the classical triangle and, you know, mm-hmm. concerto parts. And I hadn't really practiced. So I played one of these triangle excerpts like at double speed oh. of what the concerto movement is. Mm-hmm. And the guys, I mean, I love them to death. They were great guys. They giggled a little bit. Uh-huh. And I got a little insecure and they said, it's okay, Julie, it's okay. So, I mean, they didn't really think that I was going to be playing with orchestra. Sure. But then as it turned out, John Beck, uh, I did start playing with orchestras. In fact, I, I was a section leader in an orchestra in California. In a, in a desert community. And, and then I started writing for orchestras. But anyway, the point was, I did end up doing professional work. And then I ended up working with James DePriest in the Oregon Symphony um, under Neil DuPont, who was the section leader for a long time. He just retired. And John Beck called Neil and said, you know, I think Julie would be a great uh, mallet sub for the orchestra. Why don't you give her a shot? And then the whole time that we lived there in, in Portland for five years, you know, I was subbing with the, the ballet, with the, the opera sometimes, with the, the um, you know, the music festivals that happened there in Portland. It's a big cultural center. And the Oregon Symphony under James DePriest. And it was unbelievable. So I, if you had told me, you know, when I flubbed up that jury with the triangle, that I was actually going to be earning money as a symphony player, a, 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 you know, a sub, with a, with a conductor like James DePriest, I would have laughed and said, no way. But I feel like at every turn, when I got to do something new, there were people, well, not new, but when I got to try things that that maybe I hadn't been as good at before, but then I got to, to try it again or whatever. I feel like there were always people who believed in me. And that was unbelievably important to have people say, Julie, I think you can do this. And uh, why don't you try this? And that happened again and again. I, I a teacher at CalArts heard me practicing jazz, but it was a piece that I had written. And he came up and he said, I'd like you to be in my jazz band. I was like, okay, cool. You know, one of the reasons I went to CalArts was to do electronic music and, um, and tablet. And then the guy came up and that ended up being my major. Jazz composition was my major because this teacher who actually was a filmmaker and his side gig was teaching jazz because he used to be a, um, a jazz player in the LA scene. And then he inherited his father's documentary film company. And he's an Oscar nominated producer. So, I mean, he's, he's got incredible experiences. And, and he said, I'd like you to be in my jazz band. And that was it, it was like, okay. And he poured himself out to me in lessons and stuff. And another is, you know, Paul Novaris, and then the, the head of the jazz program, uh, David Wrightson, he was awesome. And then getting all my teachers, you know, from Africa, Africa, and, and, and Kobla Led Zepko, and Naomi Wenton, who has this new film out about Indonesian gamelan. Um, anyway, I, I just had unbelievable experiences. And with um, Swapon Chaudhary, and uh, before that, Pennet Terranathrao, I had opportunities because people gave me a chance to do things that I didn't even know would become major parts of my life. And I feel like um, that's why it's so important when we recognize that we have a student who's having 
having an emotional experience with what they're doing. That's what people recognize. That's how you can recognize a kid where this is going to mean something to them. And when you see that, it's really our, our responsibility to take them aside and say, hey, what can I do for you? You know, have you thought about this? Or do you want to come and hear this gig? Or, or can I show you something? Because that's always what happened to me, that I had, had somebody pull me aside. That's what happened with Emil Richards. I got to CalArts as a student. I was in town for like maybe a week. And then uh, Jerry Steinholtz had me do a clinic because he knew about my marimba thing at Northridge. And it just was pure luck that Emil Richards was doing a workshop at that same day of percussion. Emil saw my thing and he came up to me afterwards and he said, hey, have you heard about this? And he introduced me into this whole, um, <laughs> his whole thing was Indian music and odd meters coming from jazz and Indian music and putting that into you know, new stuff. And that's, that's how my life changed on a dime on that day because of Jerry Steinholtz, who then gave me you know, three years of free, um, free conga lessons because he believed in me. And then I played in his instructional video. You know, and then <laughs> Russell Hardenberger in Toronto from Nexus, he said, Julie, am I seeing this right? But are you playing, are you playing congas and percussion on Jerry Steinholtz's instructional video? I said, yeah, that's me. He said, when did you start doing that? Because uh, Russell had had me up in Toronto and actually we had had a, practically an all night conversation at his kitchen table eating ice cream. And, and, he, and I said, Russell, what should I do next? And he said, well, I can really picture you at CalArts. But he didn't know that when he was telling me, Julie, I think you should go to CalArts. Uh, he didn't know that I was gonna meet Emil and I was gonna meet Jerry Steinholtz. And you know, things were just gonna completely go in a new direction. And Emil became a mentor and um, just really changed my life like Jerry did. And then Jerry got me the endorsement with Toka Percussion and that was really important at that time. I was playing percussion and then, you know, with the CalArts Jazz Band, we started recording at Capitol Records and I got to play at the International um, IAJE Festival in, in, in New Orleans, uh, playing tunes of mine and recording tunes of mine and playing percussion with that band, none of that would have been possible without Amo and without Jerry Seinholtz. And of course, John Bergamo at CalArts, you know, just really getting me grounded in what it takes to do all this cross, cross-cultural stuff with instruments from different genres, but being very serious about studying them with masters from those genres. And then as a composer, taking that and putting it in different direction. So by the time that Amo had introduced me to Lalo Schifrin, and then Lalo said, you know, hey, I'd like you to solo with the orchestra. It was like, I had already spent four years going in a completely different direction. And then Lalo said, I want you to write for my orchestra and I want you to solo with it and pick whatever piece you want. And so then here I was getting mentoring lessons from Lalo Schifrin, the composer, you know, of Mission Impossible at his Beverly Hills mansion, you know, talking about orchestration and talk. I had never studied this shit, but because Emil believed in me, and because Lalo believed in me, um, I got to do some just amazing opportunities. And I felt like every time it was because somebody saw me have a spark. I feel so lucky to have been able to be inspired by and, and become friends with people who were able to um, kind of direct me because I felt like I've been so clueless in so many parts of my life, I wouldn't really have known what to do. If it hadn't been for um, people recognizing something special that I didn't know I had. And I think that's what makes the best mentors and the best teachers 
And the best guides in life is people who care about you and people who want to see you be more of who you are. And so going back to your original question, like from a while ago, from last month, <laughs> it's, yeah. not about, it's not about specializing or doing focusing on a lot of stuff. It's about finding out who you are and finding out what moves you and finding out what you have passion for, being able to give yourself time to make that happen. And the one thing I do want to say about that is I took a year off from Eastman, which John Beck was very worried about. He thought I wouldn't come back. And I said, John, I've got to figure out this one mallet roll thing. You know, I've got to have time. And so I really did spend one year, um, one year away from everything, uh, learning, teaching myself how to do a roll with one mallet. And then that led to everything else that I did with four mallets. So that was really the, I gave myself a year where I had to turn, turn out everybody's voices, my dad, John Beck, all of our colleagues, and just say, okay, I have to focus on this one thing because this is an idea that I have that nobody has done. I believe it's possible. I believe I'm capable of doing it. And I had to turn down the volume of the rest of the world to be able to focus on that. So that was another time, that, that was a time when I had to say, okay, I am gonna focus on one thing. And then after Eastman, um, I felt like, okay, I've developed this new technique, this new grip, all these new sounds. What am I going to do with it now? And that's when I started uh, started world, world bands, like the Common Ground, uh, that, that then ended up being asked to play uh, at the Atlanta Pasic with some really great guys, Craig Williams and Ruben Alvarez and John Bergamo and, and my husband, Gernot Bloom. So I felt like at every point when I tried something new, I got the kind of feedback for it that confirms, okay, this is, this, is, this is beautiful. And I did a workshop um, at COSA. Um, Aldo Mata invited me to come up and do, do something there. I, I really had a beautiful time. I met Michael Wimberly, we started playing duo. I met um, a bunch of beautiful people and, and Valerie Naranjo, um, she came up to me and she said that she and her husband were at that concert in Atlanta. Uh, the Pasic concert. And she said that's when she and her husband decided that they were going to start a band and start playing together because they had started, but she said it really inspired them to keep going because um, I guess that's something that's unusual about me is that, um, that I'm never afraid to listen to my inner voice. <laughs> and if it says this is something that's important and that I need to be, that I need to do in order to be me, um, I'm not afraid to start from scratch with anything because um, I'm not afraid of making mistakes and I'm not afraid of people thinking I'm crazy. Well, I mean, a famous quote by Mike Burrett once, I had a student that came to CalArts and he had been a student of Mike Burrett's. And he said, Mike said, well, what are you gonna study with Julie? Isn't she doing all this other stuff now? And my student laughed when he told me the story and I thought, yeah, Mike, yeah, I'm doing all this other stuff now, but I'm still a solo marimbus. And I love Mike. I mean, everything is cool. But it's like, um, there are some things you just have to do. And it doesn't matter if other people don't understand why you're doing them. And it doesn't matter. It really doesn't even matter if you end up making money from it or not. If there's something you have to do, you've got to do it. I, yeah, I completely agree. I. Uh... I feel like you're underselling a little bit of 
you're in a way in like your own agency with this because you have to also be personally open to these experiences from these other people that they can come at any time that you can't you know not being completely locked in to one idea or one way of thinking um obviously you emoted something that people were like that if they came up and said well, have you considered this that there was nothing that in i maybe there was nothing internally that was going i'm not going to i'm not going to listen to whoever is coming up to me you were just like i'm going to be open and, and hear what they have to say that's where you have to do that like you have to be open to to that being the case it's it's not as if these all these folks were just coming up to you you obviously had the work ethic and the openness to 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 be available for those experiences. It's interesting you say that because um, my first main percussion teacher was a guy in Indianapolis named Jeff Nearpass. And he's this brilliant guy who can do anything. I mean, he can just do anything. And he, um, he always told me, you've got to be open at any minute and ready at any minute to be able to move through a door that opens in front of you. And he said, you have to know what you can do and you have to be able to do it. And, and so our lessons would be, you know, I'd come in and I would never know what we were going to do because he'd say, okay, let's transcribe this piece now. And he would, you know, work with me with the piece and then he'd say, okay, let's write a piece in this style right now. Or, you know, let me hear those snare drum etudes again. You know, and he, he just, um, he totally got me. And that's exactly what you just said. Um, he gave me, an understanding of how important it is to have that kind of agency within yourself, to be open and to be professional. And that's also what John Beck gave me at Eastman as well. You know, you have to be professional, whatever you're gonna do. If you're gonna do new things, if you're gonna invent something new, John said, Julie, you can't just have this idea, you have to prove it. You know, if you think that it's possible to, to do a one mallet roll, you've gotta show us how to do it. You can't just do it. In fact, you have to be able to teach us which is why I took the year off because I figured I have to invent a whole technique about playing that, which then developed into all the formality stuff that I did after that. But I had these two guys, John Beck and Jeff Nearpass, who, who taught me that I have to stand on my own two feet, that I have to take responsibility for the ideas that I have. And I have to, I have to have that follow through. So yeah, you're absolutely right. Having an awareness of your own agency, I think is, um, it's like what I tell kids, you have to know that you have a choice. You have to know that you have the choice to make a decision about something. Because until we know that, we don't experience the power and the fire of what it's like to follow through on a decision. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for mentioning that. That's, that's absolutely a, a really important element and an important part of the puzzle of being able to make your own path. Um, is knowing that you have the agency to decide. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Different note, but I am curious about, tell me a little bit about what it's like being, living in Germany because you're, you didn't grow up there. I mean, you, you're, you are a freelancer, but you're not a freelancer who was born in Germany. So I'm curious about how you got started uh, you know, kind of getting your own professional base in the area and kind of a, a, were allowed to kind of have your career continue 
overseas? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't really know. I mean, we came here um, the summer of the first big heat wave that killed over a thousand people in France. I think it was close to 2000 people. We moved to France actually. Uh, we were in Southern France where so many people were dying. Oh, and, and what, I'm sorry, what year was this? This was 2003. Okay. Um, it was the first big heat wave on record where thousands of people in the West were dying. Um, we had saved some money um, and it was a couple of years after the, the Euro started being used in Europe as opposed to the individual monetary systems of each country. And the dollar sank. In the first six months we got here, the value of our savings uh, depleted just really in a depressingly fast way, just sitting in the bank. So we, uh, we realized pretty quickly we weren't gonna be able to make it in France because we couldn't find jobs and we couldn't take the heat. Because like me, we have two blonde-eyed, blonde-haired, blue-eyed kids. Uh, my husband also is, and we we just were burning to a crisp. Mm -hmm. And the whole family was getting heat sick. So we thought, okay, we'll actually move to Germany, a language I didn't speak. My French was at least something I had studied for a few years. So I came to Germany with a one-year-old, a three-year-old. Um, no language skills to speak of and no job. To back up a sec, why is it that you're, you were first looking towards France and then you would end, actually end up in Germany? Um, we had lived in France during my husband's sabbatical from his position as the director of world music program at Lewis and Clark College. And okay. um, his sabbatical, we lived in France and it was like a, a composition sabbatical we both uh, just got up every day, composed, uh, took a nap, got up, composed, had dinner, composed, and went to bed. Mm -hmm. um, it was before my second baby was born, and uh, our son, who's now a musician, uh, was just, uh, it was very easy to be able to do that. So we had lived in France, and we wanted to actually live like that. Mm -hmm. So... Um, that's why we went there. But when we came back to Germany, um, I mean, when he decided we should go uh, to Germany, we came to his hometown so that we could have help. By that time, I had the second baby and we realized it would be helpful to have some family support. Um, and there's just, like I said at the beginning, a strong, strong network supporting the arts in Germany. And at that time, uh, there was also a strong network supporting uh, Germans having kids. So there was a thing called Kindergeld, where families with children would actually be paid money from the government every month. And that ended up being what we lived on for the first mm -hmm. half of the year, uh, very frugally. Mm -hmm. And then uh, my husband's PhD was finally accredited in Germany. So he was able to get an adjunct teaching position at the University of Frankfurt. And uh, we both got these adjunct jobs uh, teaching at gymnasium. And my husband is a classical harpist and a folk harpist. So he ended up getting a lot of solo gigs. And as you know, solo gigs as a freelancer pay more than if you're in somebody's band. Um, so that's really what got things going. And then we started bands again. And of course I was still traveling a lot internationally. So the first few years, most of my work was outside of the country. 
Um, and then um, I almost got a gig as a full-time professor at Northern Illinois University. Yeah. Would have been um, really fun. Uh, another mentor of mine, uh, Robert Chapel, was teaching there. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I was really happy that, that Greg Byer got the gig. He was perfect for it. Um, Rich Holly was there at the time. Rich is mm -hmm. another mentor and old friend. Um, and it was just a bunch of guys that would have been, I mean, Rodrigo, it would have been like a total family hang. Yeah. Uh, but I'm glad Greg got it um, because as it turned out, staying here made it possible for our kids to grow up, really grow up um, bilingual, mm. which is pretty cool. And of course, in the meantime, I've learned German. I wouldn't have been able to get teaching jobs if I hadn't. Um, and then that's another reason why I ended up doing a lot more freelance work as a composer because I wasn't getting um, an adjunct job at a university and I just had the time and then the, the publisher in Norway contacted, contacted us both and offered us these, uh, these contracts um, because I had been working mainly as a composer and a solemnist and doing international stuff. And uh, so that's, that's when stuff started happening for us, um, you know, like about 13, 14 years ago. And then, um, then my husband and I made these gigs, these bands, and then we started playing in Germany a lot um, with some world music bands with uh, musicians from Iran and Mongolia. That was a really great thing. And then we started doing some touring internationally here in, in Europe. And then, um, you know, we started this quintet, this jazz quintet that's crossover between literature and stuff. So that started ticking off. And then I started doing more work as a marimbist. Um, and then, um, then I started... Uh, working, my husband had a duo with this Ethiopian German singer, Mena Mugeta, and then she wanted to do uh, more Ethiopian music. And so, because I had done a lot of world music, it was just a no brainer that the three of us got together and we started arranging these Ethiopian songs uh, using all of this crazy percussion stuff that my husband and I played. And so, then we started also doing commission work, the three of us uh, doing a lot of pop music and gospel and soul, which was a nice. Um, jump for me, uh, really uh, going in a new direction uh, as a percussionist, which I just really loved. And one of the highlights for me was doing an African music festival in Berlin uh, a couple of years ago. And uh, man, that was a lot of fun. And, and getting to, uh, we were the opening act for a Grammy winning um, African singer. And she had her guys there at this club. And after the, uh, you know, after the sound checks and stuff, it was just such a great feeling to have some of her, you know, her band come up and uh, compliment me in what I was doing. It, you know, it's this crazy setup with timbales and djembe and congas and stuff. And uh, uh, that was just a really nice confirmation that, that uh, I was moving forward in a direction that, you know, I kept getting better and better in. And being able to do that, and that's really been the band that I've worked the most with here in Germany, is, is that trio. And then, of course, duo stuff with my husband doing more. Uh, you know, we've done over a dozen CDs here, living here, and having guys come from the States and doing recordings with them and tours and concerts with them. Um, and then doing the whole classical music thing has been fantastic. Um, um, I don't know how to explain it. It's just... Every, every step just kind of led to something else and led to something else. Yeah. Um, and again, I feel lucky because uh, working with my husband is just, I mean, it's a dream. 
we're, we're best friends, we're colleagues, you know, we have 30 years of marriage under our belts and two, um, two great young adults as kids. Uh, I don't know how it worked out. I, a lot of it I owe to Nancy Zeltzman because Nancy has believed in my music and my playing. I mean, she's one of my best friends um, and she's always invited me to her festivals. Um, you know, Dane Richardson, another guy from Lawrence University. There were just a lot of people who, who consistently wanted to work with me, who consistently wanted me to do stuff. Um, another huge influence is, um, you know, Johnny Lee Lane from the US percussion camp. Mm. He and my husband worked for years and years. And a lot of the contacts, I mean, Ndugu Chancer was a really influential mentor to me and to my husband too, but really to me. I mean, he, he it's like Emil, he just changed my life. And because of Johnny Lee and mentoring me and then that connection through the camp, um, you know, I'm with Craig Williams and Ruben Alvarez starting the band there at camp, uh, Common Ground. I, I just felt like all this stuff kind of kept playing a role here in Germany. You know, we'd still be doing gigs and still be doing tours and stuff. And I felt like I just had to keep believing in myself that things were going to work. And yeah, but people like Nancy Zeltzman who, who kept giving me opportunities and kept, you know, needling me and saying, Jules, come on, what are you doing? You know, let's do this and let's do that. And I want to do this. And, and um, I always felt like when I had a dark time, you know, a few weeks or months when I would feel like uh, nothing's coming in, um, I always felt like people like that and the publishing company as well, you know, having people believe in you, having friends that know who you are and what you can do, you know, when you get discouraged, you know, Nancy told me once, I don't know why you get insecure, Jules, you're, you're a badass and you should just remember that. So I don't know, there are just people in your life who keep you on your feet and keep you going. Um, she get that on a shirt. What? You should get that on a shirt. You're a badass and you just... Uh, you should know that. Yeah, yeah, you should know that. And then like maybe two thumbs just pointed at you, you know. Think about it is all I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> if I do, um, you and Nancy Zessel will be the first to see it. Um, deal. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. Now I have to do it. <laughs> gotcha. One of the things you had said about you know, your kind of some of your employment, you had positions that were adjunct, right? Like it, you, um, at, at various locations. Did you say that you, none of these turned into full-time work, that you weren't going out for full-time work? What was, can you tell me a little bit more about the kind of the, sure. how, what happened in those situations? Well, the first chance that I got, I owed to um, Mike Udow at the University of Michigan. Uh, Mike took a sabbatical. And he had people coming in at different times for replacement teaching. Um, I had just started at CalArts for my master's. And Mike asked um, if I could come and do some, some replacement teaching for him on his sabbatical. And I just, I absolutely loved it. And I had, <laughs> there are some just crazy students that were there at that time. Chris Hardy, who's now like this rock star drummer and in, hand in, um, percussionist in, in Japan. His wife, um, Another guy who's with Silk Road now, has been with Silk Road, you know, for years. Um, a bunch of just really awesome players. And then we all became friends. And I was like the same age they were. So it was a little weird. Yeah. I mean, it was sweet for Mike to trust me to do that. But um, it was, 
it was really fun and I loved it. And I thought, okay, I could really get into this. And at CalArts, my graduate teaching assistantship, I was teaching students um, and it was so much fun. And then when I graduated, um, they hired me to teach adjunct and I thought, cool. You know, but they didn't need anything more than adjunct. You know, it was just that the, um, that the, that the older gentleman who had been teaching there before, I'm not sure if he left at that time. And then David Johnson came in and I actually applied to have a full-time job and David Johnson got it. Uh, just amazing guy who went on also as a composer, also as a jazz player. I mean, he was, I mean, CalArts just kind of, attracts and also produces people who do amazing stuff, you know, like Amy Knowles, she, all the hand percussion stuff, um, you know, and she's really running things in a great way now. But um, then when my husband, after we went through the earthquake, mm. um, yeah, and my husband thought, okay, uh, I can either stay in earthquake lands and do his PhD at um, UCLA or go to the University of Michigan because he was accepted at both places with an assistantship. And I thought, you know, whatever you want. But he ended up having a lot of um, inner ear problem because of the earthquake. Oh, oh wow. So we took the, um, actually, there's a certain percentage of the population that responds that way because of all the aftershocks. There were hundreds of aftershocks aftershocks every day that most people don't feel, but the inner ear still responds to, at least with some people. So um, I had just premiered those pieces I told you about uh, with Lalo Schifrin's orchestra and the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion. And a couple of weeks later, um, we moved to Michigan. So I was co-teaching the, co-co-directing the University of Michigan Gamelan and I told Mike, I said, hey, you know, we're going to be in Ann Arbor. Do you want me to do anything? And then he gave me this adjunct teaching job, which was really fun. And then, you know, again, I ended up having some just unbelievable students like, you know, Steve Aho, you know, this who ends up being a, a, a Hollywood film studio orchestra conductor and arranger and drum set player, you know, for the Oscars and all this stuff. I mean. There were just a bunch of guys who were in school at that time that just went on to really just blow me away. I mean, Peyton McDonald was a student. He was my toddler student. Um, Chris Froh, who's out in California now, just ridiculous player. And I got to um, teach Jonathan Singer, who's, you know, Bob's, not really Bob's protege, but Bob calls him up to do all of his subbing uh, for the xylophone stuff. And I met John when he was 14. Because uh, his teacher in Detroit called me up and said, I got a kid I think you should know. And so the whole time I was teaching adjunct at, at University of Michigan, I was also teaching John Singer. And I just felt like it was such a beautiful connection, a beautiful um, balance between adjunct teaching, composing, because by that point I had started doing more commission work um, and playing. And, you know, when Gernot got the gig in Portland, it was like, well, okay, we'll go to Portland because I didn't have a full-time job. And then we thought, well, I might get an adjunct job in Portland and I didn't. And that's when John Beck called, um, you know, Neil and said, uh, you know, do you have something in the orchestra that Julie 
could work as a sub with, and it was great. Um, but again, it was like, I never really imagined that I would be a full-time university professor because I wouldn't have known how to do everything. I mean, I'm not, I mean, when, when I was on the short list for Northern Illinois, um, it's kind of a funny story. There was just something in me that felt like I wanted my kids to grow up in Germany, but also like, I don't know if this is the right thing for me to be a full-time general percussion teacher because I do what really, oh, I don't know how to say it. I feel I like I, I know what you, I, I kind of know what you're getting at though. Like, well, here's, here's, the, here's the thing. I feel like I'm really good in lessons and I'm really good in master classes and I'm really good at festivals, you know, like talking to people mm-hmm. or talking one-on-one. But I'm not sure that it would be my strength to do the organization of, of a whole percussion department where you have to really love everything about that job. Mm-hmm. And there, I mean, I've known some guys who are so good at that, men and women who are just really, really good at that. Like, like Nancy Zeltzman and what she does at Berkeley and Boston Conservatory or mm-hmm. Dane Richardson, what he does at Lawrence, you know? Yeah. Or Mike, I mean, all these guys. Yeah. And I just felt like if I could be a full-time marimba teacher, that would be different. That would be cool. Mm-hmm. But to put me in charge of teaching somebody how to change the skin on a timpani or mm-hmm. how to organize all of the cymbal stands in the, in the equipment room, it just didn't feel like that was something that I would be able to do with 100% of my heart. And I felt yeah. like I want to do things that I do with 100% of my heart. So that's kind of why after the Northern Illinois thing and um, my audition, it wasn't, you know, it was just kind of clear to all of us, this isn't what I should do. And and the guys were so dear and so sweet, but it was like, yeah, this isn't what I'm supposed to do. I don't know if that makes sense, at least not, not yet. I can imagine in another 10 years, maybe that's what I would love to do. But at the moment, I haven't ever reached the point where I thought like, this is what I absolutely have to do. You know what I mean? No, yeah, I do. I, I, I completely do. And I, and I, I have I feel bad to- saying that because no. I think I could do it really well, but I just, I'm not drawn to it. You know, regarding the kind of the university job is that, yeah, there's things like, inventory, recruiting, managing of grad students, uh, committee meetings. <laughs> There's, um, you know, being officers of, uh, of you know, of local organizations, like, and, and th- those kinds of, there's like those, these other parts of the, managing the percussion techniques class. Like there's things that are, that are outside of kind of what it sounds like you're most passionate about that tend to be part of all of the percussion positions. Um, that are full time, and that—that's why I was like, I totally, I do totally understand, um, you know, what you're getting at. I feel like it's—it's it's, what you're doing is much more akin to someone who's um, who does like uh, who may teach like music business or recording, where their main gig is recording, or, or um, but they will teach some classes. Yeah. 
but it's not the it's not their main thing because they might be get called to do something else that requires them to to have to put that away for a few weeks or something like that. I'm I'm always open to new things that happen and new opportunities that come. So I'm not going to rule out that that would that that would ever happen. But um, I I do see what you mean. And actually, um, my husband didn't want to be a full-time university professor. He had done it for five years as the director of the world music program there at Lewis and Clark College, mm-hmm. which I'm not even sure they have anymore. I, I don't know if that still exists, but uh, he felt like uh, he felt like he needed to be mainly a musician and a composer and also a professor. Mm-hmm. And when he was a full-time professor, even though he managed to do tons of stuff. I mean, that, that classic concert I mentioned in, in Atlanta happened uh, when he was a full-time PhD student at Michigan. Mm-hmm. And lots of tours and stuff happened when, when he was a full-time professor at, you know, at the university, at the Lewis and Clark College. But um, he really needed to have that balance shifted so that it was primarily performing and composing and teaching. And, and he's, he's very happy with that balance now. Um, and I see a difference that that made in, in him being able to explore more things uh, in, in his writing and in his instruments. I mean, he's, he's picked up a bunch of new instruments that he never would have been able to do uh, if he had been spending, you know, 10 hours, 10 hours at the college. Yeah. Yeah. I mean... And kind of good for your husband to realize that because he could very easily have just decided that you were going to be itinerant, (laughs) you know, like I have to go where the job is and that's the deal. And so now we're moving to Southern Arkansas. Good luck. There's nobody, you don't know anybody there. (laughs) Well, dude, that was kind of like the the thing that happened at CalArts. I mean, a lot of people thought we were nuts to leave LA because, I mean, we were networking, a lot of great things were happening. But for me at that point, um, I was willing to give up the position at CalArts and all of my mentors and friends there. And I mean, Emil had had me in the studios one day. It wasn't like, you know, I was working with, you know, all the and there was a lot of stuff going on, but my husband's health came first. Yeah. And he, he was dizzy every day. He was dizzy. And there was nothing they could do. And those those aftershocks lasted for three years. It was the longest time that they, after an earthquake in California, that they had recorded that that number, that frequency of, of aftershocks on a daily pattern for three years. In fact, it lasted so long that there was a discussion in the scientific community whether they could still call them aftershocks. And uh, Technically, they they just they determined that they were all still aftershocks. But so we would have had three years of my husband being dizzy every day, and that's just that's not possible. Yeah. So and then when we left Michigan, you know, when he got the full time gig, it was like, okay, do you take a full time gig or do I keep my adjunct job? And that was like a no brainer. Um, even though I didn't get spousal spousal appointment, I didn't get a spousal appointment at Lewis mm-hmm. and Clark College. Um, it ended up being like, well, let's try this. Let's try him being a full-time teacher. And um, yeah, it, a, a lot of people thought we were nuts. I mean, Doug Walter is another friend of ours, you know, from 
was teaching in Colorado and, and Doug visited us and he said, you know, you guys, why would you leave this sweet position? This is fantastic. And Gannett was like, yeah, but I want to compose more and I want to play more. And he was like, well, can't you just keep doing that? And Gannett was like, I'll never forget this. We were at a French restaurant uh, having a cheap lunch at <laughs> a French mm -hmm. restaurant. Mm -hmm. And uh, and Doug was just shaking his head and Gannett was like, I can't do that. I have to be me. And so we called a bunch of friends. Uh, another friend and mentor is uh, Mike Mann, who's also a, a conductor and a percussionist and used to be big in the you know, drum corps stuff. And Mike said, look, you know, you have to think about your kids. And if you guys aren't happy doing what you're doing, you know, it's not going to be good for the kids either. And, and he was the first person who really put it in my mind, like, yeah, we're making a decision that's going to completely change their lives. And daddy was definitely coming home from the office, not a particularly happy pumpkin in that last half a year. Yeah. And so when he made that decision, I was like, okay, I'm just networked in Portland. I'm doing all this subbing, you know, it was really sweet situation. And I thought, okay, here we go again. So we picked up and moved. And then, you know, three months later, we were moving from France to Germany. And I felt like at every point I had to reevaluate what it meant to be um, who I was also negotiating who I was as a mom and as a wife and, um, and you know, believing in myself to be able to start over again. And I, I think that took, I mean, it took a lot of guts. And a friend of ours actually uh, gave us an envelope and said, open this on the airplane. So I opened it on the airplane and it was 500 bucks. And he was like, you guys inspire me to do um, what you feel is right. And he's a full-time university professor, uh, still at the university that he was at. And he's done great. I mean, he's an institution in Portland. He's amazing. But um, it was a, an affirmation for me of, yeah, there are people who get it. There are also people who get what it means to give up security and, and tenure track job and, and um, networking and to start completely over again. Um, I don't regret it for a minute. It was tricky after we got here, besides applying for the gig at Northern Illinois. It was tricky because we also applied for PhDs in composition at Princeton and um, USC. And at Princeton, the word we got was, um, we, we want our graduates to do what you guys are doing, so why would we take you as students? And it was really sweet, and it was encouraging, but I still didn't have a PhD. I didn't have a doctorate. And so then USC, they gave us both um, graduate assistantships uh, to, to get, for my husband, what would have been a second doctorate, and for me, my first in composition. and. Um, and then we found out after getting the uh, assistantships, we bought our tickets. We had um, already made our contract over for the apartment. Uh, then we found out that the uh, composition requirements, which were completely different than the composition professors who knew what we would be doing besides just studying with them. You know, I was gonna study uh, film scoring. Mm -hmm. uh, it turns out because my husband and I are completely autodidactic. In other words, I've done all my orchestra writing, just teaching myself, yep. uh, playing in the back of the orchestras and memorizing ranges and all this kind of stuff. Uh, we didn't have any degrees in uh, classical composition. And so we were going to have to start taking undergraduate composition courses 
in order to fulfill the requirements for, <laughs> for master's and doctoral things. And my husband would have had to get a third master's degree. I would have had to basically done the equivalent of a master's degree as well as a PhD. And at that point, we didn't know if we would be able to retain our graduate assistantships, um, having to take so many remedial classes. Because yeah. from the standpoint of the curriculum, we, weren't, we did not exist as composers. And from the standpoint of the composition faculty, uh, they gave us the two grad spots that they had. So it was just such a conflicting uh, feedback loop of, you're amazing, we want you to take all the money and you are nothing and you have to start from scratch. And we don't know if you'll get the graduate assistantship next year. And then on top of it, the, uh, the pool for, for the uh, childcare there at USC was full. So we would have had to pay privately uh, for childcare because our kids were um, preschool. Yeah. And when we started looking at the loans we were gonna have to take out for childcare, I mean, everything else would have been covered, but not childcare. Yeah. And it would have been four years before our youngest daughter would have been ready for school. So uh, we realized we actually couldn't afford it. And at that point, my husband had even decided, I'll go back to California. We've had an earthquake. The aftershocks are over. There probably won't be anything else, you know, in the four years that we'll be there. So we didn't know what was gonna happen. So we, we went for it. And then when we found out about having to take all these remedial classes for two or three years, um, uh, we gave up the grad assistantships and decided, okay, we're going to stay in Germany, and, uh, and we bought a house. <laughs> no. So what's it like being a freelancer in Germany? Uh, it's been a crazy wild ride. I don't know how this works. Um, I don't have my doctorate. Um, I would have really liked to get my doctorate in composition. Um, and that was, that was the tough call. Because we, we didn't know when we came here that we were going to be staying. Um, so we thought it was going to be a great experience for the kids and we'll see what happens. And we needed to be somewhere that had more support for artists uh, at that time. That's how my husband felt. So it turns out the support for artists is really good. And uh, we've been able to make a decent living and do what we love to do. And uh, we've caught a lot of lucky breaks in a lot of ways so that, you know, we are able to be homeowners. We are able to uh, you know, get enough gigs and to put things together and with my husband's teaching and with my teaching. So um, it's not something that if I were advising the me from 18 years ago, I'm not sure I would have advised me to do this, not knowing the future, because I certainly didn't know how hard it would be. And it's, um, it was really a test of character to change countries without speaking the language with two preschool kids. That was really a test of character. Yeah. And um, I'd be lying if, if I didn't say it was a test of the marriage as well. But we were able to pull through everything and um, we always believed in each other. And I guess that's really, that's, you know, having, obviously having similar values helps. Um, and, you know, faith, a lot of prayers. <laughs> A lot of prayers. Yeah. I mean, 
the the thing that I, I immediately went to when you were telling me that whole situation with the with the school in California and the PhD programs was just it's like the university just could not figure out what to do with you two. That's exactly right, man. That's exactly right. <laughs> we can figure this out and we and it would just take way less time. And they're like, no, we need you like credentialed in these like very set ways that have nothing to do with where we are actually at. And we'd be insulting, honestly, (laughs) for you to, I mean, you could do it, but you'd be sitting there like, why? Well, it's, it's like the curriculum hadn't caught up with how cool the professors were, you know, that the professors knew what they knew and they recognized what they recognized. And it didn't matter that we were autodidactic. Yep. But in the university system, it mattered a great deal because I didn't have an undergraduate or a master's degree in composition. And apparently, you can only get at USC a PhD in composition if you have an undergraduate and a master's degree. And they were going to make me sit there for five, possibly six years until I had done all of that coursework. Because, of course, all of the coursework I did at CalArts for jazz composition and in all the world music stuff had nothing to do with, um, you know, writing canons. Right. And I love canons and I love playing Bach, but I didn't study it. It's like Bach was my teacher at the piano. Bach wasn't my teacher in my theory class, although I did a lot of theory at Eastman, of course. Mm -hmm. I mean, Eastman's a serious, rigorous you know, thing. Yeah. But um, anyway, so yeah, it was, it was one of those double-edged swords. I was really happy that the composers at USC believed in both me and my husband that much. It was so awesome. It was an amazing affirmation of what you can achieve being an autodidactic learner with something that you're passionate about. Yeah. But it was also a confirmation of, do I fit in a full-time university position again at, and at that point, At that point, I was 42. And I realized, maybe not. Maybe I'm not going to get a doctorate after all. And then the publisher contacted us less than five years later and said, uh, we want to sign you. And we got a signing bonus. They publish everything. Big band, choral, orchestra, uh, neoclassical, new music, pop, rock, jazz, everything. So it turns out from a professional composition standpoint, um, Stephen at Princeton and Paul Lansky had their finger on the pulse of things because that is what the publisher was looking for. Someone who had their own voice already. Um, And so that was kind of interesting confirmation as well a few years later, although at the time it was disappointing. But you know, you have to be open to be disappointed or you're never going to be open enough to be amazingly surprised. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, and also your life experience up to that point, and I'm thinking now in terms of you moving as often as you did, and then you go overseas and you take all these positions is that is actually, you've had a lot of reps of being, in new situations like it's not a you going you making those leaps was not it was it was the leap was new 
that actual leap was new, but making those changes on the fly was not. You actually, it's like you had actually figured out a way to make it work eventually, but you knew that the process was going to work itself out, right? I believe that every single time. Yeah. And that that is faith. Faith in, in, in your own ability to not give up. Mm-hmm. Faith in in the existence of love in the universe, in, in my way of seeing things, you know, um, a force of love that I call God, that I am aware of through Christ, but it is the belief that that we attract light if we want to emit light and that the light of love, that love shines. That's all of my adult life since I've been married. That's, that's helped me get through everything. Yeah. Anyway. So yeah, it's a muscle you, you, you practice. Yeah, it is. Put yourself in a new situation. And every time I picked up a new instrument or a new, every time I immersed myself, you know, with a master teacher for several years uh, in a in a in a new style, which is certainly how I did it. Uh, not just um, watching a video or something. I mean, that that's never how I've done something. And the autodidactic learning with composing, you know, with orchestra composing. I mean, that's thousands of hours playing in orchestras and bands and playing in ensembles where, you know, this the music just comes in and you don't even know that it's coming in, but then you're sitting at the computer and you've got your finale program and then you just hear the piece in your head. It's like, oh, right, that's, yeah, because the trumpet sounds like that in that register. And when they play in that, that uh, you know, staccato sound and with that, you, right, okay. And then it just comes together and you don't, it's not, it's not something that you know you're learning. It's something that you're drinking in because you don't care about being new and you don't care about what somebody else thinks about it. You're just doing it because that's part of who you are. Doing new things is part of who I am. Yeah, because it sounds like, I mean, do have you counted how many different places you, you have, have actually lived? Yeah. What, what's the number? Oh, I don't want to say. <laughs> It's 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 up there is what you're saying. I'll, I'll, I'll put it this way: uh-huh. the first the first apartment my husband and I had after we got married, there was no space in the apartment that was wide enough to put the marimba. And if you wanted to go from the marimba from the bedroom to the living room, you had to crawl under the marimba. Uh-huh. So, so uh, one of my oldest friends, um, Eric Middleton, who wrote the his doctor's thesis on me and my music, called the Grateful Marimbas at UT Austin, Uh, he came to California from Nevada to take lessons. And he still remembers, you know, but to greet him at the door, I was crawling under the room and Gernot was carrying the laundry basket under the marimba during the lesson. So, yeah, I mean, when you have such humble beginnings um, over and over again, (laughs) (laughs) um, you you remember the, the diversity of what you've experienced, but then the numbers are less important because you realize there are a lot of numbers. Yeah. And uh, what's really important is the fact that each time uh, you take something new with you that hopefully makes you stronger because um, there's enough stuff to knock us down. You can't focus on that. You have to focus on, on what makes you stronger and what gives you empathy for other people because 
um, everybody has dark times. Everybody has disappointments and everybody has times when it's hard to believe in good stuff coming around the corner. And that's why all of us have to talk about that stuff right. so that everybody knows we all have it. Because one of the hard things is when you experience that, you feel like you're the only one. And that's just not true. Yes. Yes. hundred percent. So that's why I like to talk about love a lot about the light of love and love shines when I do workshops and lessons and stuff, because it's uh, it's what keeps me going and, and music and art and doing things that come from our spirit, making people smile and feel seen and heard and cared about and special and loved because you get to share who you are with them and you care about them. It's why I do what I do. get to part two next week so stay tuned for more with julie spencer this week's rave is the 2020 novel the resistors by gish jen and published by vintage books this book and i'll put this in air quotes as i say this on an audio podcast came recommended by being the runner-up for our city's 2021 one read book Every year, when the choices for the one read come down to the final two, I always check out both books because they tend to be good reads, and this year was no different. The author, Gish Jen, is an American of Chinese descent who was born on Long Island and has been a published author of fiction and nonfiction for the past 35 years. She has been a very highly honored writer and speaker throughout her extensive career. The novel, The Resistors, takes place at what we'll call the near future. It takes place in the form of a United States that is now called Auto-America, where everything, including the government, has been essentially automated and the internet is a fully thinking being that is referred to as Aunt Nettie. This is the Big Brother idea in play. The world is split up into two factions, the netted, who live on dry land and make up the haves, and the surplus, who live on swampland or at sea, as half of the United States is now underwater and are the have-nots. The book is told from the first-person surplus faction perspective of Grant, a former professor, and focuses on his wife, Eleanor, a still-practicing lawyer, and their daughter, Gwen, the focus of the novel, and a young girl who has a baseball pitching prodigy and is thus being recruited by the netted, the haves, and it transpires from there. It is an enormously readable work. The setting makes total sense if you think about what may happen when climate change continues to move in an unsafe direction, as well as how smart our current technology continues to move. The first-person perspective works through much, though I should say not all of the book, to be honest. But the pacing is great, and you are attached throughout. The novel covers in various ways some of the racial and sexually abusive issues that the surplus have to deal with and that are still part of this nation. And finally, the baseball portions are rendered quite well, 
with a great understanding of the game and of pitching in particular. If you're up for an enjoyable, quick read, check out The Resistors by Gish Jen. Available where you get your books. And that's our show. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment and a rating. You can always find every episode and the show notes at the homepage at PeteZambito.com slash Pete's Percussion Podcast, the episodes. The show is on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, and many other podcast locations. If you're on Facebook, like the page Pete's Percussion Podcast. You can find me there on Instagram and Twitter at Pete Zambito or by email at Pete'sPerkPod at gmail.com. And I'll catch you next week for part two of our conversation with Julie Spencer. Until then.